This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from Eric Sanders, and that word is body. So this is the part where I reflect on the word of the episode. And unlike almost anything else in this show, it's totally extemporaneous. I'm just thinking it through out loud. So the word is body. And when I think about that word, I think about the fact that for a lot of my life, I lived kind of like a brain in a jar. I was about books and writing. And, you know, it had a lot to do with being kind of a medium-sized, not particularly athletically coordinated kid who often found himself face down on any sports field he was unfortunate enough to wander onto. And as you're building up your ego and your identity, at some point, you're just like, okay, well, those are those folks and I'm this kind of person. And so they can have the body and I can have the, the brain and the words. There was a time when I loved to dance in middle school in particular. I was briefly obsessed with Michael Jackson and trying to memorize all of his dance moves. And then when hip hop came in, in in the mid eighties, I had the moonwalks from Michael. I was trying to learn to pop and lock like they did in the movie Break In and how to do backspins and butterflies and windmills and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, in that sense, I guess I was very much in my body during that period. But all of that stuff was wrapped up with emerging identity. So when those phases passed, that dancing didn't really continue. And in the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about the body, um, <laughs> that thinking about the body. The brain has revisited the body. I've done a lot of Buddhist meditation in the last 10 years, a lot of which has to do with paying attention to what's going on in the body. And I've read a number of books by biologists talking about the relationship between the nervous system and the brain and the way, ways in which our emotions, our emotional life is seated in the body, which corresponds to a lot of what I've seen to be true through meditation, through also through the use of psychedelics like ayahuasca. These are, you know, things that I've like viscerally experienced in those contexts. And then I've read a lot about the emerging science of those connections and kind of healing the rift in the Western world that goes all the way back to 
Descartes and to the Catholic Church before him, between body and spirit, body and mind, the idea of the body as some kind of, um, I don't know, lowly workhorse that carries us around while we do the important work of the mind and the spirit. And I've been thinking a lot about the importance of integrating those back again for myself. And I guess I've been doing that work in recent years, trying to understand myself as, uh, as one indivisible thing, receiving signals you know, from below and signals from above in communication, one network, one entity. And I think that coming from a place of groundedness and anchoredness in the body just makes for a better life, better relationships, better connection to the people that you're with. Whenever I do interviews, I try to be face-to-face. If I can't be in the same room with the person, I at least try to see them on a video chat because I think our I know our bodies communicate to one another through our eyes, through the movements of our faces. So those are my reflections on the body for this episode. There's a lot more to say, but we'll draw a line under that. This song coming up is called Body. Music is by Helix Lamont with lyrics and vocals by me. And bonus points if you can guess who it's addressed to.
This story is called The After Party, or Body. Washington, D.C. used to be a literal swamp. Not just a figurative, political swamp politicians promised to drain, then backfilled with their own signature load of putrescence. I'm talking dragonflies and mangroves, a heady goulash of death and decay, and all the life that swarms in to feed on it. You can really feel it on this Saturday night in late July. Down in the valley of Rock Creek Park, the night hangs still and pregnant, pulsing with cicadas. The humidity's unbearable. It's like sitting in the open mouth of some giant hippopotamus, waiting for the next hot blast of breath. Jim's 25 years old, dressed in skinny black jeans, a ripped and faded Cure t-shirt, a secondhand brocaded silk vest and eyeliner. He's a combustible admixture of arrogance and insecurity, surrounded by his posse from the play, the producer, the stage manager, and the male and female leads. It's the first play Jim's ever directed, and he's flush with victory after today's rave review in City Paper. The critic praised the raw muscularity of the production. He called the ensemble a single, heaving organism. The party's in full swing when the posse arrives. It's a 60th birthday party for a famous metal sculptor, someone Jim has never met. The three-story brick colonial is strung with a crazy array of off-white lights whose filaments are visible, as is the latest fashion. It's more plausible to imagine Spider-Man hanging this intricate display than any ordinary human with a ladder. The place is packed with the arts elite of DC, a small world, but one to which Jim has little access, being a self-isolating, prickly kind of kid whose rare creative efforts are always like terrorist attacks, secretive, sudden, and extreme. For Jim, small talk feels like an existential threat. Any normal pause in the rhythm of conversation yawns open like an abyss to swallow him. So these days, if he can't avoid a party, he never shows up without a bottle of Maker's Mark, clutching its neck in his fist like a gun. The metal sculptor knows the stage manager. He greets her on the back patio with a warm hug, embraces the whole posse with his kindly gaze, and sweeps them all inside. Jim looks him over, the weathered and wiry build, the easy, worldly confidence, and decides he doesn't like him. The artist is straight out of central casting, too smug and solid and windswept by half. Fuck this guy, Jim thinks. He's a sellout. He wouldn't know real passion anymore if it bit him on his scrawny, designer-jean-clad ass. But the art? It's incredible. Following the artist, the posse winds its way up a crowded spiral staircase. At each landing, they pass one of his pieces. Each is about seven feet tall and reminiscent at first glance of a suit of armor. Upon closer examination, the impression is of a being from the mythology of another planet. One has flames shooting out of its bulging eyes, a braided tongue that wraps around its throat like a noose, and an architecturally impressive headdress worthy of an Ottoman pasha. Another seems to recede into itself, layer upon layer of metal drawing the eyes ever inward. There is nothing commercial or generic about this art. Each piece bursts with life and originality of thought. There's no doubt. This guy is the real deal. And what is Jim? A petty tyrant who drives his stage manager crazy with impossible scheduling demands. A ridiculous poser whose visionary set design for the play demanded a fantastical feat of engineering from the unpaid, overworked set designer. 
a demonic steampunk mask made of scaffolding, spanning the full length and height of the stage, able to groan to hellish life through a pulley system of wrought iron buckets and chains with orange backlit steam periodically spewing out of the upper windows, its eyes. What comes across in that city paper review, as Jim's ambition and downtown edginess, are nothing more than a desperate plea for attention. A real artist like the sculptor doesn't give a damn about reviews. He doesn't wait for his big break. He just sits down every day of his life and calmly gets to work. The party is bursting with uncomplicated joy. It seems like everyone there is in the artist's inner circle, his chosen family, basking in his success as if it were their own. Meanwhile, Jim's getting drunker and drunker. The tour seems to go on forever. In the bedroom, there are strange metal trees, their branches overhanging the bed, their foliage trailing down low enough that Jim can reach out and touch it, which he does, cutting his thumb pretty deeply on the razor-sharp edge of a brass leaf. Blood is dripping all over the polished mahogany floor. The artist dashes off into the bathroom and reappears with gauze, tape, paper towels, and a natural spray cleaner scented with real Valencia oranges. He smiles reassuringly at Jim as he secures the bandage with tape, saying, There you go. Crisis averted. Jim forces a tight smile, but inside he's burning with hatred and shame. At this very moment, hundreds, maybe thousands of readers across the city are discovering him, Jim, as a promising young director, a blazing new talent. Here, he's a nobody, a drunken fool who can't keep his hands off the art, and the great artist has condescended to bandage him in front of an admiring crowd of onlookers. Fuck this guy. Fuck his shabby, chic, battered leather hat and his weaponized foliage. Jim is ready to go home. But not yet. Not yet. The tour continues up to a rooftop deck with an arbor overhung with grapes. Jim imagines the artist up there on an average Sunday, reclining on a chaise lounge at the center of a polyamorous cluster of enlightened hipsters, all lazily feeding each other those fat, juicy grapes. In real life, the artist is saying something about the grapes, displaying an impressive depth of knowledge about botany. It seems he has created and patented this particular strain, prized for its floral complexity. Jim reaches up to grab a grape, and the artist's hand bats his gently away. Not yet, says the sculptor. Come back in late August. Jim is not a fighter. The last time things got physical with another boy was in third grade, when Greg McPhee slung Jim over his precociously massive back and wouldn't put him down until the teacher heard his screams from the other side of the playground. Locked up as he is in his head most of the time, Jim's relationship to his body, to bodies in general, is tenuous at best. He's a brain in a vat, an idea in a vest. But 750 milliliters of whiskey has transformed him tonight into a man of action. Jim shrugs the brocaded vest to the floor, shoves the artist's shoulder with the heel of his hand, and says, Come on, bitch. Let's go. There are moments in life when events conspire to illuminate the things we're hiding from ourselves. For Jim, this is just such a moment. Unlike him, the sculptor is a man of patience and discipline. Along with metalcraft and horticulture, he has mastered the martial art of jujitsu to such an extent that when Jim comes flying at him like some demented camel, the artist simply steps aside and with a swift and elegant sweeping motion brings Jim down to the floor, allowing his head to smack the tile just hard enough that Jim might think twice in the future about assaulting well-meaning strangers in their homes. Jim just lies there on his back, blinking. The artist towers over him, his smile communicating compassion along with something strangely like gratitude. 
The reactions of the other guests are less generous. Get out of here, loser, one jeers. Go the fuck home, says another. Although his head is still ringing, Jim's body is flooded all over with a sense of well-being and relief. He can't hear the angry crowd, can't see the faces of his mortified friends. In the whole world, only two beings exist, himself and this artist, his unexpected teacher. Simultaneously, they both start laughing. The sculptor extends a hand. Jim grips a silver braceleted wrist and allows the wiry arm to lift him to his feet. The baffled partygoers look on as the two men embrace, their bodies communicating something too old and strange for words. Then Jim and his posse vanish down the spiral staircase, spill out into the humid night, and follow the winding creek back toward somebody's car. Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the U.S. presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. Resilience can be a double-edged sword. Like all living things, we humans are survivors, ready to adapt in response to violence and the threat of danger. Self-protection often happens in an instant, unconsciously. The nervous system and the body react, and they remember. Even our DNA can carry the ghosts of trauma passed down through the generations. These inner defenses evolved to keep us safe, but if the trauma is left unhealed, they can easily outlive their usefulness, doing violence to others, and even consuming their host. My guest today is Rezma Menekem. He's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. Resma is a trauma therapist and counselor who has worked with Black family support groups, the Minneapolis Police Department, and private clients. Racial trauma and violence, he argues, live in the body. In America, they live in the white body, the black body, and the bodies of law enforcement officers in different ways. The way we usually address racism through public policy changes and ideological education can help but as Rezma's work shows, it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Welcome to Clever Creature, Rezma. <laughs> Thank you, man. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I mean, I invited you because I've been reading a lot. I'm thinking a lot, as many people have, about racism and racial justice. And your work addresses it in a very different way from anything else that I've read or worked with and one that I find profound and profoundly helpful. Mm. I think it's good to lay a little bit of groundwork here, though, just for the audience. I think when most people think of trauma, mm -hmm. um, they, they might immediately think of a car accident or yeah. war. And one interesting point that you make in the book is that trauma... I mean, sometimes it has to do with the level of violence or the, you know, the intensity of the experience. Right. Sometimes it also has to do with how we're wired and how we process it. Maybe yeah. you can talk a little bit about that, yeah. what trauma so, is. So when it comes to white body supremacy, when it comes to the structure of white body supremacy, and by white body supremacy, what I mean is that we live in a structure and a philosophical ethos that is predicated on the idea that the white body is the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured. And that measurement takes place both philosophically and structurally. And so any body that is not born into a white body is deviant from a human standard. 
from the accepted from the accepted structural model. Not, yeah, that's right. But not the innate, not the intrinsic worth, but the structural worth. And when I say that, a lot of times, especially if I'm talking to you know. Uh, good kale eating liberals, right? <laughs> of, of, of whom I am one, sir, I'll have you know. So, so, so when I'm talking to, to people, sometimes what happens is, is they want to play this game between intrinsic and structural, right? So what they end up doing is saying, well, we all bleed the same and we're all the same. And what they're saying is intrinsically. Right. They never mm. say that word, but they're saying that intrinsically. That's the value. And what I always have to do is stop people and say, look, I'm not talking about that right now. <laughs> right. I'm talking about the brutality that's leveled on bodies like mine. Simply by you, by you being born into a white body, it advantages you. This is why I don't say white supremacy anymore or uh, white, white privilege anymore. Simply being born into a white body in a structure that's predicated on the white body being human and other every other body being a deviance from their human from their humanness advantages you without anything being done or said off top in that context in in that in that reality yes the the intrinsic connection between all humanity is irrelevant in it, terms of severed. our day-to-day lives it is lives. it is yeah, severed yeah. it is severed right it is why when you're working with white bodies and you're de- or when I'm working with white bodies and dealing with white bodies one of the most one of the things that I have to contend with is this frozenness this unthawed mass that has been standard, <laughs> standardized. And so when I'm talking about these pieces, and one of the reasons why I wanted to say that first is because everything that I say from this point on will come off of that foundation in terms of the way that I see how this stuff works. And so gotcha. when I'm talking about, when I'm talking about this idea that racism and white body supremacy in and of itself is traumatizing, right? I'm talking about it from a historical, from an intergenerational, from a persistent institutional, and then there are own personal impacts, right? right. Um, and those personal impacts takes place in gestation, takes place in childhood, adolescence, adulthood, uh, elderhood, and ancestralhood. And so when I'm talking about these pieces of white body supremacy being trauma, if you remove the term white body supremacy and you put trauma in its place, the word trauma in its place, the same things will apply. <laughs> so bad things don't, don't necessarily mean you are going to be traumatized. One of the elements of trauma is a piece of stuckness, right? right? That's when you know you're probably leaning in to trauma when there's a vibratory stuckness, when there's an image or thought stuckness, when there's a meaning-making stuckness, when there's a behavioral stuckness, when there's an affect and feeling stuckness, when there's a sensate stuckness. Mm. That's when you know you're dealing Mm. with trauma. And we are dealing with a collective trauma, right? That in which white folks don't even collectively know have not had to navigate or contend with the idea of race. Bodies of culture have been raced. White bodies have had the luxury of not having that be the case. 
Well, that's one of the most, I mean, it's embarrassing to say revelatory, but revelatory to me Mm -hmm. as a person in a white body. Ideas that I've encountered and the things that I've been listening to and reading, the idea that white people get to be individuals. Mm -hmm. We never have to be a white person. On the one hand, we have a problem, I think, with an overemphasis on individualism and individuality in American culture, but to the extent that every person is a unique individual, even though they're part of a collective, that privilege should exist for everyone. The problem is, is that it's out of balance. Structurally, you're right. So what what you just said was an intrinsic value, right? Absolutely. That's not what I'm talking about, right? Right? I'm talking about this structure that that steals lands, that enslaves, that breaks teeth, that votes in a reprobate as president, that puts babies in fucking cages. That's what I'm talking about and how it is standard fare. Anytime, I haven't even looked at the news coverage. We are taping this literally on the day after election day. 2020, yeah. I refuse to look at the news. I'll find out which one of these people will be the president in the next couple of days. But I am by no means thinking that whoever is elected president again, that that is going to be an assuagement of white supremacy and the brutality of it on my people. I am by no means under the illusion that black people and uh, bodies of culture are not going to be massly incarcerated. I'm I'm by no means thinking that two weeks from now, a week from now, today, that some police officer will blow the head off of some black person. Like I said before, white supremacy is trauma. White body supremacy is trauma. So if that's the case, these episodic, we, we get fooled into think that white body supremacy is episodic. It is not episodic. (laughs) It's what you're watching and what you say, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. You think as an episode, it is my lived reality. (laughs) So so this brings me to something important, actually, which is that Ibram X. Kendi, you know, he seems to locate the remedy in policy. He says it's not ideology. It's not ideology. You're not going to educate people out of being racist. Absolutely. We agree with that. You target the policy. Right. Now, where you're coming at it, and this is what I want to dig into now, is at the level of the body. And you do explicitly say in the book that ideology and policy aren't going to aren't going to cut it. So let's let's talk about how how it lives in the body. Yeah, brother. So here's what I want to say from my contemporaries, from Brother Kendi. Sister Layla, Sister Rachel Cargill, Sister LaDonna, Carly Quinn, Jacqueline Batalora, uh, Robin D'Angelo. But I learned something from each one of them. And I hope that they learned, that they learned something from me, right? There is no, they, they, I refuse to fight with my contemporaries. I refuse to fight with my ancestors or elders. There's a reason why I'm saying this, is that when Brother Kendi says um, there's ways to begin to address this from a policy, I appreciate that perspective, right? And I appreciate his uh, fervor in promoting that perspective because it actually helps me as I'm doing my work. I may be able to pick pieces of that 
and say, and here's like, like one of the things he talks about is how racism and, and white supremacy um, was not about hatred. It was about self-interest. I, I like that. I like that because so often we think, oh, you got to hate somebody. Nah, it's about self-interest, it's about people gorging on the labor of black people's bodies. It's about people gorging off of free, unseated indigenous land. <laughs> and so for me, the idea that it ain't about hatred, it's about self-interest. I love that. But I come at it from a different perspective. I've seen these types of policy remedies tried when we talk about black bodies or indigenous bodies. I mean, if you talk about indigenous bodies here in America, the number of times that America has, since it's been incorporated, has uh, violated indigenous treaties is too right. numerous to count. So we can come up with policy. I mean, right now we still have to renew civil the Civil Rights Amendment, right? Mm. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? So, mm. so, so I agree that policy can be one avenue to begin to deal with. However... I feel like just because I like like I've said that white body supremacy is a collective trauma. Remember, most white people that are listening to this podcast came from white people who were fleeing something. Yep. That never got dealt with. That never got dealt with and created a straw indigenous and a straw black body by which to blow all of that energy through. The brutality that white folks experienced, poor white people experienced at the hands of elite white people, right? Mm. The brutality that you see here in America, that brutality got perfected on poor white people. That's why they fled. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, but you, you can correct me. I'm mm. pretty sure this isn't one of those... Um sort of white fragility dodges or whatever. I'm not trying to say well, Jews I, are I, Jews I, are exceptional, yeah, but I, you let me know. Yeah, I will. Um, <laughs> you know, I got, so I got Jews on one side, right? Yeah, and they, yeah. they fled what they fled. Yeah. Um, and Jews are pretty good at like talking about the trauma. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that's like in the mm -hmm. culture. That's mm -hmm. what you do. Mm -hmm. um, but they came here and they had to face and work through poverty and struggle and whatever mm -hmm. as a result of that fleeing. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then Italians on the other side who maybe don't talk as much about mm -hmm. whatever racial trauma they experienced mm -hmm. in the past, um, but also came and dealt with, dealt with poverty. Do you include the struggle out of poverty, right, within which a lot of people learn to mm. deny their own emotions, deny their own bodies, mm -hmm. you know, enforce violence upon mm -hmm. their children to get mm -hmm. out there and survive. Mm -hmm. D would you include that as a form of encoded trauma? Not, I'm not oh, trying yeah. to say like, yeah. is it no, equal? No, yeah, no it, yeah. absolutely, it absolutely is a, a, a trauma, a traumatizing piece, right? Yeah. But, but the salve to that trauma for white folks has been whiteness. So, so, so yes, all of that happened. Absolutely. And the salve, the part of the salve that 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 so so a, 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 a Jewish person, a Jewish person in a black body has a whole different experience than a Jewish person in a white body. Oh, oh no right? doubt. Right. Yeah. So 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 yes, there is trauma. Right. But that trauma can't be used. So one of the things I, always, I talk about is this. 
I'm not talking about ethnicity. Mm. I'm not talking about religion. Right. I'm not talking about national origin. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the body. Are right. you in a white body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you in a in a in a in a right. in, in in a body? The reason I'm 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 struggling is that in whatever body you're in, you're dealing with all kinds of layers of processed and unprocessed shit. Right. So white privilege is not exactly like a one-to-one remedy for whatever your cultural history was. It's a, it adds a new layer. It adds like a yeah. different kind of experience yeah. under which all the unresolved, whatever that shit is, is still bubbling and doing whatever it does. What I'm saying is this, that doesn't usurp the brutality right. and the advantage, right? right? Now that, so yes, we all have our own personal uh, stuff that is in our own cultural and ethnic stuff that's popping up. And whiteness, the idea mm. of whiteness has been used for, for all the throngs of white folks that came over here and got free land without having to do anything. Right. All of the throngs. So what I'm saying is this yeah. is not to say that Jewish people who escaped the Holocaust Right. That's not to say, well, that never happened. That's not right. what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying that those pieces that show up in Jewish families where the family is having this experience that has been decontextualized and now looks like culture where the mother is nervous but doesn't really know why she's so nervous. Mm. Those are pass throughs and pass downs. Right. right, right. That's real. And there is a benefit to right. being housed in a white body in this nation, in this construct. That's what I'm saying. And I feel like you're also saying, though, if I read your book correctly, that that benefit is in itself traumatizing. Yes, in certain ways. yes? it is. Because, yes, for Jewish people and for people, for Jewish people and for people who, for whites. This is what I was saying earlier about the frozenness. Yeah. Right. That that stuff If it never gets dealt with, Mm. the whiteness, the construct of white body supremacy will will find ways to blow that shit and that energy through black and brown bodies and indigenous Mm. bodies. That's what I'm saying. And white bodies will never be able to get at it because the body itself has been standardized. And Mm. when you don't examine it, when you don't examine the idea of race itself, when you don't examine that with other bodies, what happens is, is that you never develop discernment. So the moment a black man says, this is fucked up and you are uh, advantaged by this shit, you go, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a Jewish person <laughs> or I'm gay or I'm this. Without realizing that every experience that white people have, every experience, every experience, every identity, every ethnicity Brown and black and indigenous bodies are also those experiences and have to contend with white body supremacy. So you can't extricate yourself from it and then turn around and tell me you're an ally. So the therapeutic perspective is a perspective of care. And you are offering in the practices you offer and the ideas that you're offering, you are offering care for racial trauma Mm -hmm. to black bodies, white bodies, and police bodies. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that care involves, um, (laughs) you know, especially for white bodies and police bodies, 
uh, a certain amount of hard truth mm -hmm. and responsibility mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. ownership mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. can feel scary and mm -hmm. threatening mm -hmm. to people going through it. Mm -hmm. So it may feel scary to bodies that are going through it, but the key is, can you stick with it? Mm -hmm. Can you stick with it for the next nine generations? Not can you develop a book club and, and read my grandmother's hands in a fucking book club. That's not, that's not, that's not what this is. Right. This is can you do your individual work and then get together with some more white bodies? Because I don't do, I don't have people come together. White bodies have to do this work with each other because the black body and the indigenous body is where America has done its dirt. And even in your nicety, it can be brutalizing and wounding. Right. And right. so... For me, the healing and the caring really does come not because of what I say or what's in the book, but what do white people do with it over time? Not the performative stuff, not the Black Lives Matter signs on your damn lawn, right? Like, how are we going to grind so we can excavate the stuff that has been unhealed and now has been so decontextualized that it looks like standard. How do we begin to get at that with each other and grind on that so something new can emerge? If you don't do the grinding, nothing new can emerge. That's that crucial concept in your book of clean pain versus clean and dirty. dirty pain, which I think would be worth That actually comes from a, an elder of mine who has since passed, Dr. David Snarsha, and he coined that. Him and, him and Dr. James Maddock worked on that idea of clean and dirty. And what clean and dirty is, is that we all know, we all have been, if we're adults, we've been in relationships with somebody that we know we should, probably shouldn't have been in a relationship with. <laughs> and we go, man, I really want to break up with you, but you stay in it, right? Mm -hmm. But your gut is saying, you got to get that help, but you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't remove yourself from it, right? We know dirty, right? This dirty. And in this society, the concept of dirty has been standardized when it comes to white people, right? The dirtiness is standard. It's denial. It's, it's denial. It's, 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 it's avoidance. It's, it's all of that. It's the frozenness. Yeah. It's the embodied frozenness, right? That's all, it, that's all the manifestation of this. And so for me, there, as adults, we don't get the choice between pain and no pain. Mm. Right. We get the choice between choosing clean or dirty at any given time. And white bodies have refused to go through this cleanly as a collective. And now is an opportunity to do that. You know, like you said, we're talking the day after <laughs> the day after over 60 million people voted for a man in the affirmative that put babies in cages. That. We're sitting here right now. We have over 200,000 people have died because of his ineptitude, right? We have, we have over 10 million infected people as we speak. And over 60 million people voted for it. That's a sickness. That's not, there, there is not policy that's going to get at that, <laughs> right? That's something so, so decontextualized and so embedded that if you don't begin to get at that, and this is for me, if we don't begin to get at that in the body and the protective mechanisms that get shored up around that, there's no way your intellect is going to be able to compete with that. 
Let's talk about some of the ways that we get at that and some of the practices in your book. I meditate, been meditating for years within like Theravadan Buddhism. There are some practices in there that have some resonance with that body awareness. And then there are a lot of visualization ones, which are kind of getting at the body through the mind. You're visualizing being in a situation yeah, or, yeah. you know, encountering something. And then what do I feel in my body, right? How we address it at the level of the body. Yeah. So one thing I want to be clear about is that whatever I talk about right now with you, I don't want people to hear this as tips. I don't want people to hear this as we're giving them tips because that is a genuflect that people do a lot. They want to hear the tips. I have people that are reading my grandmother's hands like their ninth time, right? They have to buy mm -hmm. another book because it's frayed. And, and, and what they're doing is they're not just looking at this as something to get done. They're actually using the book as a way to help guide them towards what's showing up in an embodied sense. And so And you're also offering a free online uh work workshop in cultural somatics. That's as right. Well. On, on at resma.com, right? R-E-S-M-A-A.com. And so the thing about that I tell people a lot is this. Even if you've done yoga or if you've done Buddhism or you if you pray things away, that that's not what I'm talking about. I'm specifically trying to work and want to work with the charge of race because race has a charge, a weight, a texture, a direction and a speed to it. And if you don't begin to condition and temper your body to be able to have to develop both an individual and a communal container by which that charge can be dealt with, with race specifically, then what happens is when the quaking starts, you begin to do things to get it to stop. So you Buddhist the fuck out of it, or you Christian the hell out of it, or you yoga the hell out of it. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about creating the conditions so the quaking happen, so the discernment can emerge up out of that. So the tempering and conditioning can emerge up out of that. Otherwise, people use the practices in the book to replicate things that they've already done. So they've already done yoga. So they say, oh, that's very similar to yoga. So that must be the same thing I'm supposed to get out of it. No, it's not the same thing you're supposed to get out of it. It's a different thing. Maybe this is defensive. I don't know. But I do feel like the Buddhist practice that I've done in the body is about trying to understand what's happening in the body for the sake of living better in the world. It I think does what you're saying it's supposed to do, which is wakes up that different resonance and like how you face that, you yeah, know? Yeah. yeah, you're right. It's it's a little defensive. Oh, what I'm saying yeah, is defensive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with Fair you. Fair enough. Right. I own that. Okay. I agree with you. Because I know what I'm saying is very difficult okay. for white bodies to hold, right? Without trying to put it in a different worldview or a different understanding. I'm saying hold the race itself. When you're doing, just stay with that. I'm not interested in none. I'm not interested in you, in you transforming. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not interested in you becoming self-actualized. I don't give a fuck, right? That's not, I don't give a shit about that. I'm saying stay with the race and see, <laughs> and see what emerges from that as you do that yourself and as you do it with other bodies, other white bodies, and then see what emerges. See what emerges from that place. Don't move the light to a different corner. Just hold it right there on that 
And all of this work with that, work with the charge, work with the texture, work with the speed of that. I, I understand and accept <laughs> and do not, do not defend further. <laughs> yeah, so one of the themes of this show, outside of what we're dealing with here or talking about in terms of race, is creativity. So I, I am interested in... If you want to go there, what role creativity plays I love in, in your I love work? It. So when I wrote the book, one of the things that I did was is I did a workshop for about three or four months with about 50 artists here in the Twin Cities, right? Mm. Musicians, visual artists, graphic artists, and stuff like that. And one of the beautiful things, two beautiful things came out of that. One is we did, um, the artists went away. And we would talk and talk periodically. They would be reading the book. And they went away. And 11 of them came up with a whole art exhibit based on parts of the book and their own, own take on it. I think it went on for like four months, right, where people could come and, and have this experience. So that was one piece. And the other thing is that the musicians then went away and cut a whole album mm. based on the book called um, Dismembered and Unarmed. Can people listen to that? Yeah, if you if you go to dismemberedandunarmed.com, it'll take you to where people can get it. And then also, if you go to publicfunctionary.com or publicfunctionary.org, I think they still have some of the pictures up from, okay. uh, from the visual stuff. So I called this stuff somatic abolitionism, right? How do we begin to, over the next nine generations, abolish the concept of white body supremacy from the body? And so one of the things that I'm very interested in is connecting with artists and connecting with people. I'm very interested in the creative pieces because I think there are many different ways into this and not all of them are cognitive. You know, music physically moves the body, resonates yeah. in the body. Yeah. Sculpture that you yeah. can interact with yeah. or touch, you yeah. know, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Yeah. When I think about, you know, people trying to address racism through policy and education, they're thinking of what is scalable, right? Yes, that word, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so you're, this work is necessarily grassroots in a sense because people need to come together in collectives. It's or, very slow. Doing policy, making sure that things are have redress, all those different things, very important. And when you're not doing that, you need to have a place where you can come back to where you can be resourced, where you can be admonished, where you can be held, where you can be pushed, where you can be, right? All those different types of things. And many times we don't spend the time doing those things. One of the beautiful things, I read this story, it was one of the murders of a black body. And one of the things that happened was some women got together and started opening their houses for whaling houses. So people could just come and sit and rock and wail because what happened to me and what happened to my people didn't happen to my people individually. It happened collectively. So developing only individual responses to a collective brutality and horror is inadequate. And rage as in protesting is not the same as mourning. No, 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 no. Both are important, not the same. And they don't get at the same things. And so opening the houses and allowing people to to wail was a historical 
response to her historical brutality. It was an intergenerational response to intergenerational brutality. It was a persistent institutional response to persistent institutional brutality. And it was a personal response to personal brutality visited upon Black and Indigenous bodies. Resma, thank you for your work and thank you for taking time on this day of all days to come and, and talk to my audience. I appreciate it, man. When I get a chance to speak to different people, I like doing it. So just thank you for having me. That beautiful theme song is by Emre Gotts, my son. Special thanks to Eric Sanders for the word of the episode, Body, and to Helix Lamont for the instrumentals for the song of the episode. I'll be back in two weeks with Amy Nezukumatato, the poet and essayist, author of World of Wonders. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you took a moment to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. <laughs>